Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I'd have quit long ago. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And finally, as a sword person, let me invite you to my online community, swordpeople.com, where you can interact with all sorts of people who are into historical martial arts in one way or another, without trolls, ads, algorithms, or Russian sex bots getting in the way. It's built on the Mighty Networks platform, which means we are paying for hosting and the use of their software, servers, and tech support, so we are the customers. We are not handing over our data to be sold to commercial interests, and so there is no incentive for algorithm-driven fear-mongering to maximize time on the platform. It's as pure as social media can be. There are four levels of membership. Free, this gives you access to the main discussion areas and events, etc. Or, at £5 a month, you can join Support Sword People, which gives you access to all of the above, plus the satisfaction of helping to support the platform, and access to live streams and my train-along sessions. Then there's the Solo Scholars at £20 a month, which gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses that can be done alone, which are solo training, footwork, breathing, meditation, and recreating historical swordsmanship from historical sources. And finally, there is the Mastering the Art of Arms level at £40 a month, which gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses, such as the Complete Longsword Course, Complete Rapier, Medieval Sword and Buckler, and How to Teach. There are no paid ads, no paid promotions, nothing like that, which means we are entirely dependent on the users of the platform to pay for it, so if you're thinking about joining, please do consider one of the paid options. So, if you'd like to join us and think you can behave yourself like a reasonable adult, because the code of conduct is absolute and enforced with an iron hand, which is why it's such a nice place to spend time, go to swordpeople.com and click Request to Join. It's fast, easy, and straightforward. You can get Sword People on your phone or other device by downloading the Mighty Networks app and signing in. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Dr. Anti Ias, whose recent doctoral dissertation is a scholarly examination of Royal Armoury's manuscript 133, and includes, again, this, this is just an appendix, just something he had to do to keep his notes in order, a complete transcription and translation of the entire manuscript. But that's just the appendix. Right. So without further ado, Anti, welcome to the show. Thank you. So um, I'm guessing you're in Helsinki, correct? Yes, that is true. I am in Helsinki, in the capital of Finland, uh, currently in my home study. 
Excellent. And, and Helsinki is basically my hometown. That's what <laughs> when I think when I think hometown, it's it's Helsinki. Um, so while I lived in Helsinki, I don't think we ever met, did we? Uh, no, I don't think so. We've exchanged a few emails once or something, and I and I actually saw you at uh, at a FinCon convention, but that must have been in Uvascula, I think, and that was like twenty plus years ago. Yeah. But, so uh, fin- that was FinCon two thousand one in Uvascula. Yeah, most likely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was the year I moved to Finland. I remember it really clearly. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So, how did you get into historical martial arts? Uh, well, I mean, if I go to the, if 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 I ignore having watched uh, relevant movies and stuff like that, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, around year two thousand. I was reading a, a martial arts book by Keith Kanschbecht uh, on, on Wing Chun mostly, uh, mm-hmm. but it also included this chapter on, on the history of martial arts. And, uh, and, and he also refers there to several uh, of these, these older uh, German books. Among them, uh, there were illustrations from uh, Albrecht Dürer's Hoplo Didascalia and uh, Swetnam School of Arms and uh, Joachim Meyer. And uh, also Jakob Happel's uh, book from 1865. And at the time, I, I simply thought that oh, this is something very interesting because, of course, he had he had picked some images showing uh, weapons similar to those used in Wing Chun for obvious reasons. Of course, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and and being already interested in in older literature and and and, and uh, language uh, languages at the time, I was. Uh, I was I was enthralled by these images, but uh, at the time uh, I had had no means to pursue this any further. Uh, besides, besides, uh, I, I did quite a lot of reading at the local bookstore. I remember Sydney Anglo's uh, the Martial oh, yeah. Arts of Renaissance Europe, for example, um, there in Akatemin and Kiriakauppa, which used to be pretty good in the old days. It used and, to be, uh, yeah, but, but and, it was always been very expensive. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And uh, then in 2001 was the act- actually the first time I did some relevant training. That was in Denmark, and that was uh, the European Historical Combat Guild. So it's a bit different from 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 anything anything that I do, do today. Actually, I have a vague recollection of them. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, based on John Wall- late John Wallace uh, teaching. Right. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So primarily and, uh, stage combating. Yeah, yeah. So based, based, kind of a system based, based off, uh, his, his ideas of stage combat, which is, uh, uh, quite interesting in its own right, I must say. Sure. Uh, but, but anyway, then, of course, like I said, I didn't really have the means at the time to pursue this, this interest further, doing my other martial arts business, of course, training, like uh, Wing Chun and Eskrima at the okay. time. But, uh, my, uh, one of my Danish instructors eventually did get me to, to sort of start actively training with these kinds of weapons and, uh, and, uh, Lars Lind, uh, from Copenhagen and, uh, and we've also done quite a lot of training with uh, Konrad Kessler from from Germany. Okay. And uh, I can, can I just say that so, all this time I was right there in Helsinki, and you could have just showed up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> I know you got to do it the hard way, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things, things things go the way they go. And, uh, and nowadays I'm I'm uh, teaching a small group at, at at our club as a kind of a part of of Lars Lin's weapons combat systems uh, okay. uh, thing. And then I train with uh, Griesvart uh, group. So so training with a group of friends and uh, teaching a small group in in. 
historical martial arts. That's basically. So, basically, it has, what's your group called? Griswart. It's run by Yoli Pakala. Okay. Oh, it's Yoli. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yoli was yeah. a student of mine for a very long yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. So you're 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 part of Yoli's crew now. Excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of that, fun. That that in martial arts terms, that makes you my grandchild. You realise? Yeah, I suppose if we want to go for this greenish <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not a fan, so don't yeah, worry. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so your how did you come across the manuscript Royal Army's manuscript one thirty three? Well, originally, I suppose somewhere on the internet, you know, okay. in, the, in the in the early days. <laughs> when, I think when, I think Anglo mentions it in yeah yeah I mean yeah he, of course yeah 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 he yeah. he talks about it in his book and there are some quite quite nice facsimiles there, a few pages and and uh, and some some notes on the on the technical terms and uh, and how how one thirty three goes about communicating technique and so forth. But uh, of course, I, I I suppose I did find. Uh, Around that time, also something on the internet, some some early transcriptions mm. or whatnot. But uh, uh, but but yeah yeah. So that's I mean I've I've known the manuscript as such for 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 a long time. So I can't uh, okay. really pinpoint not... the exact moment I came to know. No 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 no. <laughs> yeah. no I, I don't mean the exact moment you first saw it. Yeah. I mean the moment when you thought I'm going to spend years of my life oh, yes, getting yes. incredibly nerdy about this particular book. Ah okay. Well yeah. Well that's a more perhaps a more interesting story, actually, uh, because at the time I, I actually majored in English philology, uh, okay. specializing in uh, Old English, Anglo-Saxon related mm -hmm. stuff. But uh, then because of some reasons, I was sort of prevented from doing uh, what I wanted to do for my PhD at the time within, okay. within that realm of, of knowledge. So I... I Decided to go for 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 Latin language because at the time I had also done uh, Latin and, and Greek both uh, the whole thing the advanced studies which I suppose somewhere might might make sense to call it like a triple major or something. Okay, so that's um, English so, English philology Latin and Greek as a kind of uh, yeah 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 triple yeah, major. Yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, so then then I I sort of got this idea as I was writing something. That never came to be because I decided to do something else with it. With it, uh, but but essentially, one thirty studying this Latin medieval Latin manuscript because, uh, as I said, I had been working with medieval stuff earlier anyway. So I thought this was something something of a sweet spot because it wasn't exactly like boring linguistics or translation studies or something like that. But it was more yeah. like how you communicate. Uh, ideas or technique and stuff like that. Plus, it had something to do with my hobbies, having to do with martial arts and, and, and fencing and stuff. And uh, so, so it felt like, like, like a good idea. And of course, you know, this being basically the only medieval Latin <laughs> uh, fencing manuscript, it was, of, of course, the obvious choice. Yeah, and sure. uh, what, I, what I was a bit worried about was, of course, that at that time uh, they had already published this uh, French edition, and there was, of course, uh, Geoffrey Forgang's uh, wonderful mm -hmm. edition uh, in, in, uh, uh, at that time in the second edition already, the extraordinary one. 
Yeah, the extraordinary so, editions. Oh, yeah, God, so, that's a good book. Yeah, so 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 a lot <laughs> lots had had been written on this topic and. Uh, and uh, what actually, I suppose, surprised myself and other people afterwards was that how much, how much I eventually did find to say about this this topic. <laughs> Besides, yeah, I, you know, the, can, can I just interject? Mm, your your yeah. your PhD thesis is extremely long, right? Mm. When when I described it as monumental, I was I was being absolutely literal. It is huge. And 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 it manages to combine being huge with actually being interesting the whole way through. So I don't know oh, quite well, how you did that. Thank you, thank you. Glad glad to hear it because I mean, obviously, not each and every chapter is going to please each and every reader. But then again, that was not the point point anyway. So. Yeah. Uh, but uh, of course, because I sort of widened my my questions to not only this particular manuscript and its contents, but to cover yeah. the genre. Yeah. So then, of course, this whole whole the scope of the study sort of becomes wider and allowed me to, and I'm saying allowed me to because I really enjoyed this and I thought that yeah. this is something that will be more useful for me uh, in the future than having just, you know, looked at one one text. So to, to look at this genre, not only how it sort of comes to be uh, around the same time when 133 was composed. I mean, I, I sort of take it for granted now that there existed more literature at the time and, and before 133. That so, has to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so sort of speculating on that and, uh, well, not speculating, but making educated guesses on that, inferring things mm-hmm. uh, from, from 133. And of course, uh, 133's position when when you look at what comes later, so how, so how, so in in a sense, how does one thirty three represent the corpus of literature that existed at the time from whence all this other stuff sort of comes yeah. uh, comes out of? So so that that became a rather interesting uh, endeavor to to find out. And okay. and of course, uh, well, one one of my favorite details is is uh, uh, is uh, Giles of Rome, who slightly before in the late thirteenth century. Uh, published his his the uh, regimine principum on the on the governing of, of princes, which is uh, like a, like a manual for, for 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 well as it says on the tin a manual for princes on how to govern, and uh, it has uh, extensive paraphrases from Vegetius, mm-hmm. and and he also has two chapters on on using the sword. And footwork, really, and and, and yeah, and and uh, the, this is kind of interesting when you think of Giles of Rome as being quite popular. So there are like like uh, hundreds of yeah, in in, in, of his in his work. time, yeah, 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 yeah. So and it was yeah. translated into other languages. I mean, I haven't looked at this in 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 more detail. I mean, like like the reception of his his teachings in the, in that sense, mm. and and I might in the future. But but yeah. anyway, you could say tentatively that his was the most popular fight book in the medieval period in a sense yeah. i mean yeah, it's and, just like two chapters within this this uh, larger book but it's still quite interesting sure and, but it's reasonable it's reasonable mm. to to suppose that the more copies survive the more mm. popular the book was that's yeah, reasonable yeah, yeah. yeah but of course yeah. a book being popular is one thing individual sections having been read and studied and of course, another, that's thing, another thing yeah yeah of course yeah. so so then you'd have to go for the manuscripts and look at the marginal notes to find signs of reading and you'd have to you know call, try to find I, comments, am, am comments, i sensing your before. your next your next research project uh, who knows <laughs> yes uh, please do because I, I want a translation <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of stuff going on but uh, yeah we can we okay. can talk about that later but but of course, uh, there is that, all, that one section where mm. 133 refers to footwork. Yeah. 
that one one little part where it says that you can either step forward with with, with the with the left or back with the right. Yeah, implying that you sort of stand in a position from which you would end up in the same alignment of feet, whether you you pass with the left or pass with the right backward. Yeah. So uh, this only part where one thirty three refers to footwork is in contrast to what Giles of Rome says, because he writes sort of following Vegetius that you should mm-hmm. only move the right foot. Ah, okay. And I don't think that's like a. I mean, it's a very small thing. But but it doesn't feel like a coincidence. So it could be that this is something of a comment that yes, you can actually also you know. <laughs> move oh, the other, the so yeah. so so you think the author of one thirty three may have read Giles? Yeah, yeah. I mean, why okay. not? Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Fair. Okay. Or or had been exposed to this idea because it is Vegetius or so what whatever you know. So so basically, the earliest reference to footwork, uh, so in Giles. Um, He's basically recommending the kind of footwork that modern sport fences do, just with the lead, the right foot forward all the time. Uh, no, I think what he means is that you either pass back with the right or pass forward with the right. So the left is sort of the immobile center, like in I think it's like Vardy's diagram. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the left you have foot the is sun and the yeah. sun and the tower. So the left yeah. foot is firm for your yeah. safety, and the and the right turns around it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's something like that, and it doesn't quite fit what Vegetius says but this is it's it's when you when you start interpreting these small technical details from a text that has a lot of ambiguity especially the older it gets it's always uh, slightly difficult so it's i am not i'm not taking any definite stance on that yet but uh, so so okay. whatever i wrote in my dissertation <laughs> about that of course you should probably check that out but uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 an interesting, interesting, interesting matter. Yeah, and mm. and it's it's interesting to see how these we we tend to think of in the kind of wider historical martial arts community. We tend to think of one thirty three as the first book, mm. right? And there's yeah. nothing really before that. But you just check on Wicked now, and there's lots of sort of books before that. But it's mm. one thirty three is like the first complete. This is all about sword fighting and nothing else. Yeah. text that you could just look at and go yes that's a fight book and that's all it, that that is its function um mm. so while you were doing all this sort of putting it in its wider fencing context um was there anything that particularly surprised you uh well i suppose the what i just talked about this this amount of of uh, intertextuality that you can you mm-hmm. can find uh in 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 time back and forth like like we just talked about uh, backwards to Giles of Rome and mm-hmm. and and then also this this whole structure when you think of these seven parts uh it's it's kind of it's it's this logical uh uh structure where you just divide yeah. you know you've got you cuts from from below left and right and cuts uh, the, the high cut the vertical cut and then from the other side and then you've got the thrust and uh then you've got the end position of all movements that's yeah. defined so so that's kind of just a logical way of talking about fencing it's not it doesn't necessarily mean that this is now a system of fencing but it's just you know we want to talk about this so let's divide it up like this and and yeah. some something similar to this structure then shows up later on in Andreas Lignitz's uh six uh six uh, Stücke of 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 sword and buckler Mm-hmm. Where he kind of goes not in the same order, of course, but he also sort of starts from from cuts from from the right and uh, 
there's the low cut and all the he calls it the changing cut and, and so forth and then there's the thrust that is very similar to to uh, to, to how the thrust mm -hmm. is depicted in 133 uh, so Kind of this that you can see these traces of this intellectual effort that was apparently taken somewhere in the in the early 14th century, late uh, late late 13th century to to conceptualize fencing. So you can see these traces later on, but then you also see these uh, uh, like less coherent. Let's say. I mean, I mean, I'm not, when I say less coherent, I'm saying it's bad. I'm just saying that it's more like just putting random things in order, like like the Lichtenauerian. Uh, Lichtenauer's uh, 17 uh, Hauptstücke. It's just, you know, mm. things one after another. It, it doesn't divide the system in the same way. Right. See, it, there's mm. something that has bugged me for a long time, right? 133 is beautifully organized. Here are yeah. these seven wards, which make sense. And then this, the, the treatise is organized. So let's have a look at first ward and let's have a look at second ward mm. and let's have a look at third ward. And it just yeah. basically is organized like that. So it's, it has a very clear organizational structure, yeah. which is easy to follow, mm. right? Then we have Fiore, mm. who organizes things a yeah. little differently, but it's a very clear, very organized structure. You know, here's, depending on which, which manuscripts you, you look at, let's say, here's the wrestling, here's the dagger. The dagger mm. plays are organized by these nine masters, these nine different ways of defending. Then there's a sword in one hand and so on it goes, right? Mm. And it's all beautifully organized. And then the Germans in the 15th century just sort of slap stuff together in this sort of like, okay, here's a bit of this and here's a bit of that. And yes, they kind of organize it vaguely according to, um, Lichtenau's Merkverse, the Zettel. But yeah, the, the treatises themselves are not these ordered, organized things. They're much more haphazard. Why is that? Um, I mean, it's, it's maybe comparing apples and oranges in the sense okay. that if you look at Fiore's book, he has collected material and explicitly organized it in order right. to be a presentable copy. So yeah. if you want to if you want to compare that to something, then you might compare that to like Joachim Meyer later or, or okay. um, Paulus Hector Meyer or something like that, mm -hmm. who have also sort of well collected stuff and of course include the stuff that I know and compose stuff themselves maybe. But, uh, so, so that's different from these individual shorter texts that we have. For example, from Andreas Lignitzer, whom I just mentioned, that he's mm -hmm. got this one text on Sword and Buckler, six points. And that's also kind of, it's, it's an organization. It has yeah, one no. topic, okay. Sword and Buckler, and then it's organized under these six, um, exercises. Okay. So, and, 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 and I have to say, Andreas Lignitzer, uh, uh, one of my favorites in this sense, uh, he, he, al he always numbers everything. So he, he's kind of trying to be the organized one. Yeah. Although he is so, the exception. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and then, uh, then the other shorter text you've got is, okay, now we've got, well, well, well I mean, the, the armored fencing from four guards, that's also uh, organized according to four guards. Mm -hmm. So it's the same, in a sense, the same system as in 133, that you start from the first one, then you move on to the second, third, and the fourth. So uh, I wouldn't say that they are completely uh, dis disorganized in that sense. And of course, Lichtenauer's Merkverse, that probably has some kind of uh, uh, history that explains that, okay, when he composed, when he compiled his system from, from what he had learned, uh, that he would have, it would have made sense for him to compose his 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 uh, sort of uh, verse in this way for whatever reason for mm. safekeeping or you know as, as something that you need to learn to be sort of part of his secret 
society, so to speak, or, or something like that. So, so who knows? And, and of course, it does even even there, it does kind of make sense that you've got all the five uh, master cuts uh, in the mm-hmm. beginning. It's not like you've got to get one master cut and then later on, after something else, you get the second master cut and, and so forth. So, so there is some <laughs> some hint of organization there as well. But uh, regarding using guards as an organ or wards, I mean, I don't same word. I don't. Yeah, yeah, same same thing. Different dialects. Uh, so. Uh, yes, that is something we have in 133 where it makes absolutely sense. And when you think of influences uh, or loan words in languages, wherever it makes, wherever it can be analyzed, that's usually the loan giver. And the, the language in which you can't analyze a loan word, that's that's got the loan. Okay, so it's not the okay. other way around. So where it makes yeah. sense, that's probably the original one. Okay. So so he, he, looking at this sort of historically, in 133, the organization makes sense because it's kind of based on this division of, of the whole of fencing. Yeah. And then the entire book is d- d- proceeds according to this division, which is very much in accordance with uh, medieval uh, intellectual sensibilities. And, uh, and, and, and then later on, we sort of get remnants of this, that, uh, like I said, uh, this, this uh, text on the uh, fighting in armor from the four guards, uh, and then in, in, in the... Uh, Rome manuscript, the uh, so-called uh, Fondantich uh, mm-hmm. Codex. It also has the four guards at the beginning, which 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 is kind of like the only, it's it's the only illustration in the book. So it kind of goes to say that for some reason, whoever made this manuscript thought that showing the guards in the beginning is something that you're sort of supposed to do. Right. Even though in this context it doesn't really make sense because Lichtenauer's longsword doesn't really proceed from these different guards. Right. They are not really used for any of this. And I would argue the same goes for Fiore. He also he has a list of guards and then he sort of forgets about them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like he, he has the guards because he, he feels that, okay, this is how you write a, a fight book. You put in the guards first. Then he says anything that comes to mind regarding the guards. And then he goes on listing his favorite moves that he has seen performed, or at least, at least uh, seen performed. No, 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 no. Okay, Stas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, okay. <laughs> if you look at the organization of Fiora's, we're talking about the longsword material, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, the guards are organized in, or, or are presented in a somewhat, not haphazard, but mm. an inconsistent way, and it's not consistent across all the manuscripts, okay? Mm-hmm. So, yes. Yep. But the organization of the longsword plays themselves make perfect sense. They are, uh, they are an exercise in, um, basically demonstrating how, well, firstly, they're divided into the Largo plays mm-hmm, and the Stratton mm-hmm, plays. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So the Largo plays proceed from the crossing of the sword where you've beaten your opponent's weapon away and you are in some degree mm. free to strike. Okay, yep. so you have the feed it away, strike over the arms. That's the first thing. Mm. But if you have control of their sword, but you're not quite free to leave the sword to strike, you grab the blade mm-hmm. and hit them or grab the blade and yep. kick them in the knee. Okay. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. then we have the Copa de Villano. If the blow comes in mm-hmm. really hard, you cover it in the same way, but moving across and let it slide off to the side and you hit them on the other side of the blade. Okay. Mm. And you follow that up with a thrust or something else. So that's the next two plays. Okay. Then we have the blades coming together in such a way that they, you, again, the points are up out of the way. You're not going to get hit, but again, you're not quite free just to leave the blade and strike. So you kick them in the nuts. So their cover will falter as the text says. Right. And then the next play after that, um, up 
after the crossing or even before the crossing, the context isn't entirely clear. There's a cut to the leg and you slip the leg and you strike it in the head. Okay, so he's going through the various possibilities of what yeah. can happen when these two blows come together. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can keep going about on this for the next yeah, 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 hour. Yeah. And, right. and I actually, but this, this is your interview, so, so let's... Yeah, I, I actually I appreciate all of that, but, <laughs> okay. but that, that's not what I meant. But I, what, what, okay. what I meant was that instead of going for this kind of that you show the guards and then you do yeah. something with the guards, organize them according to the guards, yeah. that's not what's happening there. No, no, and no. like I said before, he has organized his material. There is no doubt about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, as you say, it's... Uh, it's uh, yeah, yeah. So, so that's not the point. But still, you know, you can you can sort of catch these different ideas of, of how sure. to write fight books uh, I, underneath I mean, there. Yeah, it is an entirely fair question as to why he would um, like have these guards of the polax, guards of the sword and armor, guards mm. of the spear. Why why would he include those when they're really not necessary? Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe it's because yeah. this is how we present the fight book. Yeah, uh, and and of course, I mean, it's it's his source material because he he there existed fight books. He he re- refers to existing fight books, so he's probably you know making the best use of the uh, this okay. corpus of does, imagery. Does he refer to existing fight books? Well, he mentions that one of his students owns fight books. Well, what owns books? Fight books. Well, well, yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and he says no one can, be, no yeah. one can, yeah, no one can master the art without yeah, yeah. books. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, I think it's. Mm. I, I would absolutely dearly love it if there was a mm. bibliography in the back of Fiore where he says, and yes, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Should, should check out these works by other masters mm. such as, and then a nice little list of manuscripts yeah, you can yeah. go and hunt hunt down in libraries. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, I would have. I would love it if we yeah. if we could find solid evidence of a library of fight books mm, that, ex- mm. that existed in the 14th century. Mm, mm. I yeah, I suppose there is a lot of uh, lost uh, material that's now lost to us because this kind yeah. of stuff obviously hasn't attracted that much interest. Because you know, I mean, what are you going to do with it? Because the, the widely held belief seems to have been that this is not something you can even you know intellectually teach to people so even fiore has to sort of uh, fiore has to um justify you know that that you can't be a, you know like even his student says that you can't mm-hmm. be a good student of this art if you don't own books yeah. so 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 why, why would you make this point if it if it were obvious to everybody because yeah obviously it's sure. not and, and this is something something that that uh, that we find you know all the way to the 19th century bayonet combat is the same idea that this is not something personal combat is not something you can teach people and uh, and and then well in antiquity as well we've got in Xenophon's Syropidea uh, uh, we've got this passage where it is implied that anybody can uh, fight with sword and shield because we all uh, since we are children we pick up sticks and we know how to poke things with them and <laughs> and if somebody hits us we know how to raise our left hand to defend so so if we fight our enemy with swords and shields they have no advantage uh, over us because everybody has the equal has equal it, opportunity so to speak except except literally every successful army in the world trains the soldiers Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, but but train in what? Do they train them in personal, interpersonal combat, or do they train them in the all the other stuff like you know keeping formation, marching with discipline to actually meet the enemy and so forth? So this is actually a very yeah. interesting question, which is not that straightforward, and we can get yeah. back to that later on because it's uh, yeah, um, yeah, it, it's 
It's an interesting thought that, according to Xenophon, basically I've wasted my life trying to teach people skills that can't be taught. Well, you can be happy that Aristotle disagreed with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, I would say Aristotle over Xenophon yeah. any day. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, but this, 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 to some extent, it's probably that people are talking about different things that, you know, it's, yeah. it's always when you say that you can't learn sword fighting from a book. Well, obviously, you can't read a book and then you, you can go and, and do sword fighting. But uh, I suppose you can read a book and pick up the exercises, do them with a partner, train with a partner, and then you will have gained some sort of skill. So you could say that, yes, right. I learned this from a book as opposed to somebody teaching me. But still, yes. you did not gain that skill from the book. You gained that from practice. And this is this is something that on the level of discourse gets muddled up very easily when, when right. people talk and about it, this. Yeah. yeah, it comes down to the difference between semantic knowledge and procedural knowledge. Right. Mm, yeah, yeah. So the book gives you the semantic knowledge that this is a sword and this is what you do with it. Yeah, yeah. That. And this is and exactly the kind of thing that, that these fight books give us. They sort of, they, they can give some pointers like, okay, yes, you should point the, the sword at the enemy at all times. So, and you should not, you should not hit his weapon, but you should hit against his, yeah. his uh, openings and so forth, which yeah. are, which are all not all, all very nice. And, and, and you can actually use them in your exercises when you, when you do something and you, you're trying to figure out, well, what am I doing wrong? Okay. Okay, then I go through these precepts and oh yes I'm actually not following that one so again you, you get something out of that so, right. so you can use this kind of stuff but you need to apply it to, to actually embody it right exactly and you know I make a large chunk of my living from writing mm. books to teach yeah, yeah, people yeah. how to fight with swords so I think so I agree entirely you can't learn sword fighting from just reading a book you absolutely can and do learn it from reading a book and applying the exercises therein. Mm, mm, yeah, 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 yeah. It's that translation from semantic yeah. to procedural knowledge, yeah, which yeah. is the trick. The, the only thing yeah. is, of course, that you can learn some things from people's, from other people's bodies when you are in actual contact with them, yeah. you know? You know, yeah. even if it's through a sword or something, when, yeah. when you move and they react and then you learn things from them. So Absolutely. that's something you can't get if you don't have a life teacher, but, no. but all the no. other stuff. No, 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 you can, yeah. you can, yeah. you can. You learn, you don't learn. I, mean, I speak as a historical yeah. martial arts instructor. This has been my job for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. You, and I shouldn't say this because it's bad for business. You don't learn swordsmanship from the teacher. You learn it from the person you're crossing swords with, right? So the mm -hmm. teacher's job yeah, yeah, is yeah. to make sure that the person yeah. you're crossing swords with is doing what they need to do so that you mm. can learn what you need to learn. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's when we're talking about good teachers and, and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, when you've got these expert practitioners who can't really explain anything, right. they just sort of want to show you. And then when you, you, you do stuff with them and you sort of get the feeling that, okay, now I sort of, I'm sort of getting what he's doing. And now I have this feeling that, okay, this is what works. And yeah. you can't really put it to words in any way. So it becomes this kind of silent knowledge that's, that apparently gets passed from their body to yours. Yeah. I mean, not, not to sound too esoteric about it, but uh, well, this, this, this is just the kind of knowledge that I was referring to. I mean, but, and, and, so and you're not wrong yeah. because, because when you watch somebody who's really good at what they're doing, when yeah. you watch them move, mm. your mirror neurons fire up. And one way of learning movement is to copy the movement by basically recreating through movement the feeling you get by watching the movement. Yeah. Yeah. But 
So it communicates that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, sometimes uh, it's a very interesting question of, of what kind of detail can you put into writing in a meaningful way. And, and I, I do like this idea of, of, of uh, uh, what do you call it, this uh, constraint-based uh, learning. So, you've got, mm-hmm. you, so you can sort of freely do what you want, but you've got these constraints within which you must operate, and then you right. sort of adapt to the best yeah. uh, uh, method your your body is able to come up with, and and in a way I like to use uh, like like Ringex uh, glosses to Lichtenauer's Zollenhau as as an example because it kind of fits with this this idea that okay the opponent cuts at you from their right shoulder and what do you do you also cut at them uh, from your right shoulder without parrying so that's one contra- constraint you are cutting at them you're not parrying and obviously well you need to cut them in some way that their cut doesn't hit you. Yeah. Yeah. So you can already, you, you already know when your exercise fails, if you do this, if they hit you, you did it wrong. And you yeah. just sort of try to find, okay, now I, I know how to cut, cut them without them cutting, cutting me or hitting me. And it's not a parry because the next movement is, then I threaten them with the point. So that's another constraint. You should be able to immediately thrust uh, after this, this, uh, this, uh, counter cut. So, so you've got these, these, uh, constraints that is not a parry, it's a cut, and it should end up so that you are threatening them with a point. So okay. using yeah. these pointers, you can sort of construct this uh, aid sure. technique that is similar enough to what they meant. Although the way that it's done, that actually works, suggests to me that the word that is being translated as parry does not mean parry the way we, what, the way we mean when we say parry. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Because uh, you're putting your sword in the way of their sword. Yes. It's, it's, but, you're not aim, yeah. but you're not aiming a strike at their sword. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? You're aiming it at them, but your sword is getting in the way of theirs. And for your yeah. point to be free to strike immediately, you can't actually hit them with the cut. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's... I mean, obviously you can't... If right. you both so, hit each other in the same way, then it's yeah. just a very... Yeah, so, so, so you're doing... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you're doing a blow... Mm-hmm. That closes the line of the incoming attack and places your point in line to strike Mm -hmm. by any reasonable definition of the way we use the term parry now. Mm. It's a parry. It is. But the way what they mean when they say Mm. parry back in, certainly in Fury, I'm not an expert on the lifting now stuff at all, Mm. but when Fury is using the word, the the closest word he uses to parry would be rebattere, which Mm. is to beat aside. And in that yeah. case, my okay. blow would be cutting your weapon mm-hmm. out of the way, and then I'd be striking. Yeah. And so, so I think Lichtenauer is explicitly mm. saying, like, don't cut the weapon out of the way. Mm. Make this yeah, cut yeah, yeah, that yeah. ends in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what everybody means when they say parry in, in, yeah. <laughs> in the because suppose I, I mean I suppose any defense can be called a parry yeah. to yeah. some some extent. Yeah. And uh, that is pretty much the original meaning, uh, I suppose. But uh, but in this case, this this Versetzen is is what I think is meant in this uh, in in Lichtenauer's uh, glosses and and stuff is mm-hmm. that there is this kind of uh, uh, w- w- when you look at when they talk about if 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 the opponent performs a Versetzen, so it's always sort of about them going too much to the side yeah. or not being in line and, and so forth. So that's probably what it means, that it's more like something, as you say, something that you shouldn't be doing uh, yeah. for, for, for various reasons. So, so, so exactly, so, so it's exactly this. So, so you shouldn't be simply 
putting your sword or trying to hit their sword out of the way, but instead yeah. cut uh, in a way yeah. that, uh, as, as you just put it very beautifully. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> hey, but, but, but my point, point is still this, that uh, these texts do include these kind of yes. useful pointers for creating Absolutely. technique sometimes. And uh, it, it's, it's uh, something that is certainly worth looking at. But uh, then other, other, at other times they just, you know, <laughs> don't don't provide details like this. Yeah. yeah, true. Okay, now I'm keenly aware that we're nearly forty minutes in, and yeah. I've I've only asked you three out of my nine questions. <laughs> so I'm just going to jump to the next question, which was actually um, sent to me by Cornelius Berthold, who's uh, uh. Uh, who's been on the show before. Actually, we discussed tempo in great depth and detail. So uh -huh. he says. You meticulously analyze both image and especially the text, but when trying to make sense of the content over the course of the book, you more and more base your arguments on a practical interpretation of the actual fighting techniques. This makes sense on the one hand, but on the other one is a slippery slope, as you can imagine. How did you try to separate the evidence from the book from your own martial arts experience that naturally colors your interpretation of what techniques are being described? Hmm. Good, yeah, good that, question, that is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that is a very... <laughs> A pertinent question, and I think we already covered some of some of those topics. Actually, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, of course, this is always a problem. This this uh, researcher's bias, and it also goes for languages because the way you read, for example, an ancient language, it always has to do with with what kind of texts have you read before, and what kind of uh, well, what kind of dictionaries you happen to be using, and so forth. So there is always this kind of bias of interpretation based on that, and and when it comes to to body technique, it's it's even more. Uh, it, it, it has it has even more to do with with uh, how you are used to using your body and but 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 still uh, one interesting thing is that uh, at my at, uh, at my defense my opponent was actually worried of the opposite thing he asked me if i had actually uh, worked through it sword in hand oh, really so so i mean <laughs> who was your opponent uh, daniel Jacquet. oh right okay yeah. That, so, I, I cannot think of a better person to be your opponent. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, very, very nice. But, uh, but uh, so obviously people can read it in in, in more than one way. Sure. But uh, th this is something I, I I did give a lot of consideration to, and of course, what I try most not to do is to identify uh, uh, any of the uh, movements that I see described in texts as something as the same as something uh, that I know from somewhere else. And, and to be quite honest, I don't, I don't for, for this very reason, I mean, I have, of course, I mean, I have played through 133 several times and I have I've done things uh, based on 133, but I sort of stopped doing that at some point. And I thought that it's simply better to sort of try to uh, uh, stay on the level of what is actually said in the text and how that fits with what is said elsewhere and, and sort of use these different discourses to kind of try to create some kind of uh, explanation for why they write the things they write. So uh, sometimes I suppose uh, one could argue that my, my own lack of talent comes in the way, for example, when I say that grabbing the opponent's buckler with your right hand is, is, uh, is a complicated movement. Well, maybe somebody will come and say that it's actually not a complicated movement. I can do it at I, tournaments or something. I don't, Who knows? I, I don't think it's complicated. Well, I mean, yeah, it's not complicated to do as a movement. I mean, I can show it to people, but yeah. performing it against somebody who is actually fighting okay. against you, you or something. You but, have to be really, yeah, really yeah, mentally yeah, prepared yeah. to let go yeah. of your own sword. <laughs> yeah, That's the hard yeah. bit. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. But but anyway, that's that's just an example actually, which which I use to 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 uh, underline the fact that some movements seem to be obviously less. Uh, some recurring movements in sword and buckler uh, sources seem to be less basic than others. So Absolutely. this is this is obviously something that's included, not because it's something that people just kept doing all the time when they were sort of buckler fencing with each other. Or who knows? I mean, maybe they did. But still, it seems like something that would happen less often, but mm -hmm. would be included because it was it was kind of felt to be the sign of, a, you know, a complete uh, text or complete work on sword and buckler or something. Yeah, but, and, uh, and the, priest, the priest explicitly contrasts what he does with the common fencing. Mm. So one, one can reasonably expect that he's a bit more sophisticated, or at least thinks he is. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the way I read these captions is is uh, is kind of that that whatever this book contains was was considered to be, or these images, what they contain is was considered something rather uh, extraordinary, which which mm. is the reason they were recorded in the first place, which is the reason they were commented on with these captions and so forth. So yes, of course, this book does contain something that not everybody was doing at the time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. actually, just a sort of sidebar. Why do you think the book was written? Well, it's well, it expensive. I'm not sure how expensive this particular book would have been, but uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, to to record this this stuff for posterity, maybe to set up, you know, like a, something of a tradition or or, or, okay. or act as a collective memory for re remembering how how this this things okay. should be done or something. Because obviously, if you are teaching the art, you need to teach it in a, in a live teaching situation. But sure. uh, but uh, this kind of this, this it, it, it's, it's sort of like part of this intellectual efforts of the time to, you know, to make sense of sense of everything. So in a way, it just fits with that. I mean, why do we now write books mm. about things? It's not True. that that different from that. Maybe. Um, so who do you think it was written for? Mm. I can't remember if I've ventured any idea on that, so I'm not going to... I, I will pass on this one. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, Fair enough. It's, mm, yeah. So, so should we say insufficient evidence to make a declarative statement? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Something that, like that. that. That's a much more <laughs> academic way of saying pass. Mm, yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah, but that's the thing, you know, I don't I don't like speculating much, so, so it's... Uh, Fair. Yeah. No, and, and, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I was just because yeah, it's yeah, one yeah. thing that's, that's always sort of bugged me, like where we have a mm. dedic a dedicatee for a book. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Duke of Urbino, for instance, or yeah. um, Nicola Deste, or whoever else. Then there's at least an audience of one, mm. and mm. and you can imagine you can imagine. Yeah. yeah but okay. In yeah, the author's some, mind, in the author's mind, there somebody is somebody they wanted to associate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not but, an audience as, as per se, perhaps. No, but yeah. but there's well, like like in in the Getty manuscript at least there's mm. there's there are references yeah. to the Marquis within the book, like like mm. when he's mm. putting poison dust out of the polack yeah. in his <laughs> yeah, face. Yeah, yeah, he says, funny. you know, um, uh, Signora Mio Marchese, so like my gracious lord, sort of thing. Um, I know you would never do this sort of thing, but I I include the rest. I, I include this here just for the sake of knowledge. Mm. Right, so he's he's addressing the Marcus within the book, and and so you can say, well, he he may the Marcus may never have actually seen the book, but in mm. the author's head, yeah, that's the kind of audience he's writing it for, mm -hmm. right? And 
There isn't any any such thing in one thirty three. Yeah, um, there is no there is no prologue or anything, so it's it's no. really hard to say. And, so, uh, and it doesn't the point was, it, do, yeah. it doesn't look like a presentation. No, 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 no. It looks no. more like a. Um, well, it's, and it's, it's not a house book either. It, it's it's clearly a treatise of this one particular topic. Yeah, yeah, which which has been then corrected and and yeah. uh, some changes. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm just just wondering. I mean, maybe he had a student who he was think who he had in mind when he was writing. Yeah, or maybe they were setting up a martial arts school. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. That's probably that's, that's probably close to it. All right. Okay. Now we're going to leave one thirty three aside for a minute because I do have some other very important questions I have to ask you. Um, and the first one is: What are you currently working on? Uh, currently, I'm working on uh, Konrad Kieser's Bellifortis, which okay. is slightly later than uh, one thirty three, but it's interesting because the uh, Poetic form of 133 is uh, similarly incompetent as that of, of Bellifortis. And of course, uh, the material of, of Bellifortis is related in the, in, is related in the sense that it deals with, with, uh, technology for, for war and all kinds right. of recipes and alchemy and astronomy and, and these kind of in interesting topics. But, uh, what I intend to get done is, is, uh, is a, a critical edition of the text and, uh, oh, wow. Or a scientific edition of the text and a translation, of course, and a commentary, plus plus some some work on on his sources and his uh, the the way he uh, the, the way the poetry is composed. Okay, fantastic. So when will mm. we expect that to come out? That depends entirely on on uh, if if I can get this whole project funded so I can actually finish it. Ah, okay, right. <laughs> Fingers crossed that the grant giving bodies are merciful. Yes, um, thank you. That actually, are you planning on producing your PhD as a book or two books? Uh, yes, it was suggested that I should uh, I should uh, aim for two separate books, uh, one okay. on, on thirty three and the uh, and the other on on five books more generally. And this is something that yeah. I'm pursuing at the moment, actually. Yeah, because I would love to see those as as publishable books. Okay, I have a very specific question for you. What might one find? in the Greek papyri of pragmatic literature on combat technique. Let me give you the reference. P Oxy 3466 and LXX1X5204. Oh, well, yes. uh, that is the, the title of an article I, I wrote on this topic. So if one Googles that, then they Where will Where do you think I got the idea from? <laughs> if one Googles that, then they will definitely find my article. But, um, well... Uh, uh, yes, obviously this this goes for the more more. This is for the more ancient history of, of fight books. These mm -hmm. are the uh, these two papyri fragments are the most ancient uh, fight book fragments fragments, if you will, that that we we actually have. They are both from the second century, preserved in in in, in Roman Egypt, and uh, they have been published uh, in the papyri of, of uh, Oxyrhynchus as numbers four six six and five two zero four in nineteen o three and uh, two thousand fourteen. So the first one, number four six six, that's fairly well known. Much has been written about it, and uh, the second one was published slightly later, so it hasn't been okay. discussed that much. Fairly well known in certain circles, but I'm guessing most of my listeners have never heard of it. So if you just expand a little bit, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so it's 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 a uh, it's a fragment from from a book on uh, wrestling or, or grappling. 
uh, written in a nice book hand, so it seems to have been a commercial book. And it's basically what we have are sequences of moves uh, written in the form of commands, well, supposedly given by the instructor to, to their students. And uh, one of the better, better preserved sequences goes something like, uh, you put your arm around, you grab under it, you step across and tangle. And okay. at the end, so we don't we, we we can't really make much of you know ancient Greek wrestling uh, out of that because we don't we, we I mean there are many uh, there are resources for for looking into what these terms actually mean and Michael Polyakov's books are, are a great place to start for that and uh, what what I did I wasn't trying to give any like technical interpretation of this 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 fragment but uh, instead uh, what I was interested in was what what do these two fragments the other the other is actually so fragmentary that the only thing it can sort of tell us is that it seems to match this form of okay. the other one so it also appears to be made up of commands and uh, and sequences but uh, this seems to establish uh, the, the fact that there was a genre of wrestling manuals in existence mm-hmm. and uh, and and uh, they were something that people would have read at the time because obviously wrestling was hugely popular in the in the in the Greek speaking world and also well later on in in, in, the, in the in the whole greco roman world i suppose so so uh the, this kind of gives us the first glimpse into what a fight book could look like. And what I find sort of interesting there is that it's, it's only references to what we have. It's only references to techniques that the reader and the listener of the commands are supposed to know, of course. Okay. Mm. So, so it's, it's not like technical descriptions, but it just gives you a sequence that you can sort of perform yeah, it, for. Yeah. It it reminds me from what you just said, it reminds me of like the late nineteenth century sort of cutlass yeah. or bayonet manuals where where, yes, yes. where manual the instructor fight. says says yeah. and you know, line A yeah, goes yeah, into yeah, this yeah. position, line mm-hmm. B does this attack, yeah. and yes. uh, here yes, these are the exactly. commands that are given. And okay. and so so this is yeah. <laughs> And and uh, and also like like uh, the way you write down classical fencing lessons, sometimes you can also yeah. give them as commands. Uh, so so in one way, this seems to be like the most. If you think of what what would be the most the simplest way of writing down or uh, it, it, depicting fighting technique in 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 a way that you can sort of put on papyrus or or whatever writing surface. So you can write down what the teacher would say. Or you can draw pictures showing uh, the throws or the grips or whatever. And we, we, we find both of these in, in the, in the ancient Greek world. We've got these vast paintings, you know, showing wrestling mm-hmm. moves and, uh, and, uh, we've got this, these wonderful fragments that give us lists of commands uh, in the form as if they were given, uh, uh, by a by a wrestling instructor. So so this is kind of you could think that this is this is the most naturalistic way of doing it or something. Kind of like just you know writing down life teaching. But then again, as you say, these these lists of commands are also given later on in in the nineteenth century, which for for slightly different reasons. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's like like primitive in 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 a, in a bad sense or anything. No, no, no. Just... But of course, there is so little material that that uh, that uh, you can't really say much about it, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, still, it's it's uh, yes, very interesting stuff. And of course, I would love to see if there ever was uh, like a, like a film set in in uh, uh, Roman Egypt and they wanted to show wrestling it would be great you know if they just used this yeah yeah and instructor <laughs> saying to sort of, yeah, yeah yeah it would be <laughs> it would be it would be really great but i mean 
I don't think that you can you, you can't really um, make more than educated guesses on on how to actually play out this sequence. I've just had a brilliant idea, mm-hmm. right? Okay, about seven or eight years ago, I did a um, April Fool's joke on the entire historical martial arts world because I fabricated a falchion treatise mm-hmm. in Italian in manuscript form, and I published it on April the 1st and and then, you know, revealed that it was actually a complete fabrication, right? Because <laughs> it was... And, and honestly, honestly, okay, I absolved myself of any any naughtiness because at the end, there's a, there's a picture of the falchion and it's the Medici falchion from the Wallace collection, really clearly and obviously a mid-16th century falchion in a 14th century manuscript. So, you know, like, it's like... It, it's like making the yeah. characters wear wristwatches. Okay. So, mm-hmm. okay. but, but <laughs> it was, and it was hysterical. And the funniest bit was okay. when people got a bit sniffy about having been taken in by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and said, well, yes. And of course I knew from this bit here that the, from the grammar and whatnot, that it couldn't possibly be 14th century. And it's like, yes, but actually I took that verbatim from one of Fury's manuscripts. So, Hmm, I think the grammar's about right. But anyway, mm-hmm. anyway, I digress. Some people can take a joke, some people can't. Yeah, but wouldn't, mean, wouldn't it be awesome to yeah. get some papyrus, copy some wrestling images from vases onto the papyrus with these Greek instructions underneath, mm-hmm. age it with like tea and stick it in the oven or whatever? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> you probably wouldn't fool anyone. <laughs> no, 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 The, the objective isn't to fo- isn't to seriously fool anyone. The, I, I yeah. think, I think though, actually, mm. actually, we would fool almost everyone in historical martial arts because most of them don't know anything about the early Greek, early classical stuff, right? And they can't read. Yeah, well, I can't read. There isn't much to to know about, honestly. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, it would but, be, yeah, it would be it would be extremely funny. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I mean to be, to get back to this uh, this this uh, wonderful uh, grappling grappling fragment. So uh, one more interesting thing is, of course, that they sort of this what I just called sequences. They are kind of like uh, what what people now call plays or mm-hmm. or, or stupid yeah. or, or something. So so in in that sense, the way to conceptualize uh, fighting technique in in form of such sequences seems to be, you know, like the most ancient thing we know of. Ah, it's fantastic, so, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This, uh, and, and of course, uh, it didn't escape the Greeks uh, that, that uh, wrestling uh, is, you know, with, with these bodies entwined together and, and so forth, so uh, has some erotic connotations as well. And this is, the, these are the sources where we also know, or we, where we have like corroborating evidence that this is how uh, wrestling instruction was given because we have some um, erotic epigrams that sort of uh, indirectly show situations like this where one is giving commands to the other to do certain things and there is this one one erotic story where the, there is a lady who who says that she will uh, act act as the uh, wrestling coach and she will start giving this, this really? instructions and then he has to uh, grab her by the thighs and to throw her on her back and, and so forth. So, so, so this is indirect evidence, but it kind of corroborates the form that these uh, yeah. papyri um, display, which is kind of uh, kind of interesting. See, I do have a note here to ask you about um, ancient Greek sex manual. Oh yes, uh, well, 
hopefully not just ancient Greeks, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> ancient uh, sex manuals. Yes, this is, this, is some, yeah, this is something that I've also been uh, pursuing lately because it sort of uh, relates to this, this topic of, of uh, body technique and how body yeah. technique is, is uh, communicated, communicated in, in writing or, and, and, and text and image. So, well, I mean, what we have is, of course, uh, people would mo most likely be familiar with the name Ovid, who... Mm -hmm. Who wrote uh, Art of Love, which is about seduction and how how you how you get to meet girls and uh, what you need to say to them and 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 so forth. And it also has a very short section on 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 uh, sexual positions that lists okay. a, a few positions uh, and and uh, which 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 position is the most suitable for which body type and this kind of thing. Mostly on like aesthetic grounds. So he's okay. he's uh, different from Lucretius there. Who who actually says that uh, more ferrarum, which uh, is the uh, the manner of, of beasts or the the way you do it on the Discovery Channel, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, is the best because that's best for procreation and everything anything else is just you know bad because it defeats that aim. But uh, uh, Ovid talks about what is what what looks the best, what is aesthetically more pleasing or exciting, and so forth. But uh, Ovid was not again. Ovid was also not writing in a vacuum. I mean, uh, his his work was not the like you know the only. He didn't invent the genre of of ancient love manuals or anything. Uh, so before him, we have uh, a, a few names and references to uh, earlier existing literature. Uh, one name that pops up is uh, Elephantis. Uh, it's like um, I mean, I'm going to skip some of the details, some of the stuff that has been <laughs> written about what do these names actually refer to? Are they just pseudonyms of men who are actually writing mm -hmm. these books, or are they just you know uh, generic prostitute names or something? I mean, that's that's not uh, interesting at the moment. But uh, we have these references in in classical or ancient poetry uh, of of Elephantis's books being used as as models, or her pictures being used as models. And uh, for example, Suetonius tells us of of uh, 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 the emperor Tiberius having had her books and uh, paintings in his uh, several bed chambers, so in his private uh, island, in okay. his, his infamous sex caves, uh, <laughs> so, that, so that nobody... You know, okay. <laughs> I, I, I have a new life goal. I, I, need, I need to have a private island with an infamous sex cave. Yes, that's what uh, I want. That, that's my life ambition mm, right there. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, and he's, he's Tiberius is... There is this one film, uh, Caligula, with Malcolm McDowell and uh, Peter O'Toole as, as uh, mm. uh, Tiberius, which probably gives a very accurate depiction thereof. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, Suetonius says that he had these pictures in this bedchamber so that nobody would lack a model uh, to perform if, if they needed to perform any of the uh, ordered positions. Wow! So, so we have these very clear indications that these these images uh, uh, of of from from Elephantis books were used as models. So, sort of communicating yeah. technical knowledge how to perform a certain position. So, so he yep. had these sex manuals in his infamous sex cave in exactly yes. the same way that I have the treatise of the day open on a lectern. So when my students are training, they can see the yes. book. Yes, it is Fantastic. exactly the same thing. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so then uh, another author uh, is is uh, Philanis, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she probably lived earlier. She probably lived in the in the in the fourth uh, uh, century BCE, and she apparently also authored a work of of similar nature, which is referred to in in similar ways and also used as as a model. And this is something that we actually have a fragment of of uh, again in the uh, Oxyrhynchus papyri uh, number two eight nine one. Unfortunately, this fragment doesn't include uh, any actual positions or anything like that, but it has has a uh, the beginning of a section, uh, it indicates the, the author, who is named uh, as, as uh, Philinus, Philinus or Gumenus Samia. And uh, so, so, so it includes the start of a section on, on seduction, and then it ends with the title on kissing. So these are the kind of topics that we also encounter in Ovid. So it's very good reason to assume that Ovid's work is somehow kind of uh, inspired by, by Philinus' uh, work. So, but uh, unfortunately, we don't. This doesn't actually corroborate the fact that she would have discussed uh, or or depicted these these different positions in in in, uh, in any detail. But still, yeah, it's it's kind of like the wrestling manual that we've got this fragment that doesn't really uh, tell us much, but tells us enough so that several articles have been already been written on it and uh, much Fantastic. academic ink has been spilled on it. So yeah, it, but, it strikes me as interesting that uh, it's a truism that every technology eventually gets used for violence and for sex, right? Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, and, I mean, and, hmm. and like, here we have like thousands, several thousand year old sources, which, you know, writing relatively new, writing on paper, I mean, not really new, but it's, hmm. it's early days of writing, should we put it that way? And they're writing about how to do sex better and how to do violence better. It's fantastic. Yeah, these topics sort of, sort of uh, go hand in hand. They are both yeah. themes that are at different times in different cultures. They are very much part of everybody's, you know, everyday lives. And sometimes right. they are more, more, you know, taboos and, and, uh, so forth. But, uh, but yes, def- definitely. And also one interesting thing is that, uh, that I do, th- do think that the way they sort of conceptualized sex in terms of these positions, Mm-hmm. Is the kind of same same way they conceptualized uh, wrestling in terms of these uh, um, sequences because they they actually mm. use the same words scam for for both of them. Okay. And and uh, interestingly, there is this uh, uh, one ancient uh, rhetorician, uh, Isocrates, who lived in the fourth uh, uh, century B, uh, BCE, and he actually wrote that. Uh, that uh, if you want to train a speaker, you you teach them just the same way as you as you train uh, wrestlers. You teach them first all the the, the schemes or the uh, figures figures of wrestling. It would be the correct word, um, the schemata, the, the the figures. And then after they've learned all the figures, they get to apply them freely. Right. And and it goes that way. So it goes from wrestling to to speaking or thinking properly, like arguing mm-hmm. logically and so forth. So. Again, I mean, we talked about earlier how you first have the guards and then you sort of have the sequences based on those guards. But uh, I wouldn't go as far far as seeing a link here necessarily at this point. But it's sort of an intriguing idea that you've yeah. got this, that you've got these these these, these like these uh, school uh, things like set yeah. Uh, yeah. figures and then you apply them, which is like a very basic basic idea in many martial arts even today. Right. I, I think. Yeah. Here, yeah. here are the forms. Mm. Now go mm-hmm. play. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and and uh, these uh, sex positions, by the way, they are just called figures in 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 Latin and and Greek as well. So so it's kind of like 
there there are these similarities so not only that this is a way of way of uh, communicating technique but also how they sort of think of this way of communicating technique so so it's a uh, yeah th this all ties ties together very nicely yeah like like they're answering the fundamental problem mm -hmm. here is a yeah. skill yeah um and here are, here are the sort of the the theories and and like the mm -hmm. pro the propositions that, that yeah. it's related to and again how do you get from this yeah. propositional semantic knowledge to procedural yeah. knowledge or skill yes. and and uh, isocrates actually says that there are so many there are there, there isn't like an infinite number of different situations that can can come across in the real world so you can't have theory for all of them you can't have right. like specific set theories for all of them so so if you know good figures and you have trained in them then you can you know figure Adapt. out <laughs> most of them yeah 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 so so his thoughts like 2400 years ago 400 or 2300 years ago it's, it's pretty much uh topical Bang on. i think yeah yeah <laughs> i mean nothing nothing new under the sun why are we doing all this <laughs> <laughs> well why wouldn't we mm, um, yeah, of course. okay uh now i see over your right shoulder a bayonet trainer leaning against the wall oh yes yes indeed. um so and we've mentioned Bayonet stuff a little earlier. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, oh yes, the bayonet combat or bayonet fencing uh, is mm -hmm. something that I've been pursuing for some years as a, something of a side project, and it also ties ties neatly with all these uh, topics that we've been discussing. Uh, uh, and and also, it's it's a very interesting phenomenon in in European uh, martial or combat arts because it is something that came to be. Uh, at the turn of the 19th century and existed for a relatively short time and then it turned into something else that is well, i mean we still have bayonet combat we still have people training the use of bayonets but that is actually a slightly uh, uh, i would argue that that's something different it's not this, okay. this thing that i'm mainly interested in because it has become more this uh, uh, this uh, pugilistic boxing boxing kind of thing not bayonet fencing using bayonet rifle as as you would use use like a like a fencing sword right uh, but uh, but uh, so uh, and and i think well uh we we talked about earlier how you can't so there there have been in history several people who who think that you can't really teach uh, like like interpersonal combat to anybody because it, it's it's, yeah. it's like this intellectual thing. It depends on the intelligence of the person, and you can't teach that. You can teach people to load a musket because it's just mechanical movements. You can show them to them. You can you can make pictures of them, like in these uh, drill books. You can just give picture series and have people do them, and you can see that they do it properly. So that is a skill that can be taught, and then you can tell them to fire, and that's that's it, basically. But you can't teach these complex skills, like you can't really teach anybody to win battles, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can teach, you, you can sort of give them education and hope they will be good officers or generals. But this, this is also a very, I mean, now I'm sidetracking slightly, but this is also a relatively new phenomenon that you would actually have schools for officers where you teach them to do their job, so to speak. Yeah. So, so that's, that's also like an 18th, late 18th century, century idea, basically. But, uh, so, uh, so, so this is the, the the idea that also permeated uh, the uh, the scene of of of, uh, of bayonet fencing, and even though like after the Thirty Years' War, people somewhere started putting their daggers in their, their muskets, and uh, then they called them bayonets, and people started using bayonets instead of pikes in the early eighteenth uh, century. This doesn't mean that people were training bayonet fencing at the time, no. and. Uh, 
and the way they first held the bayonets was like like how you hold a pike in the in the field position that you have the uh, rear hand uh, rear arm straight and uh, the front front arm sort of vertical and uh, the pike is just lying there and you, you mm -hmm. walk forward with that and when you when you are what do you call it in English? You don't fail the pike. You you charge the pike. Yes, you charge right. the pike against against uh, infantry. So so they they would have the uh, uh, bayonet, the, the the musket with the bayonet uh, in more or less the same position, which was rather awkward. And uh, in in seventeen fifty three, actually, the Prussian army changed the grip into what what you now think of when you think of a bayonet uh, combat grip that you hold it like normally as if as if you could be also firing it from roll the same position oh, interesting. and 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 uh, around this time also um, in in actually 1762 uh, there was this one french officer who was working as an officer in the prussian army who was uh, commenting on on uh, morris of of saxony's uh, uh, book, uh, and he wondered there, why don't we teach our soldiers to use the bayonets the same way we teach them to fence? Because with the feints and, and parries and so forth. Because this wasn't something that they were doing at the time. Right. And, and there is also one, um, uh, I remember one English manual, uh, where it simply says that you don't, in, in, in drills, you don't need a command for, for the thrust because, you know, everybody will know when to thrust because when the opponent, when the enemy is there, you, you thrust and you can't miss with that. So it's not something you would train. <laughs> Or anything, and uh, and speaking of the English, of of course, uh, uh, in the, the the British Army did experiment with techniques uh, of of uh, bayonet fencing. Uh, Anthony Gordon's name is uh, famous enough, I suppose, because he he uh, his book was published in eighteen eighteen oh five, which is on on fencing and also bayonet uh, yeah. combat. I'm, he, I'm loving this. Hang on a second. All right, the people who may have heard of the Greek stuff. I almost certainly will never have heard of the Gordon stuff from 1805 and vice versa. So, yeah, so, so, so just, just give a little bit of context. Yeah, okay. yeah, okay, okay. There, there isn't, well, there isn't much to say about Anthony Gordon's. I think Hutton said that he's just a weird curiosity or something. But he, <laughs> he, he, he did develop a bayonet uh, fighting system and he tried to sort of uh, introduce it to the British Army, but he was rejected. Uh, in the 1790s, I think, but he still published it in, in his in his book in 1805, and uh, and uh, he claims that it's a scientific method because uh, the way he uh, puts them, uh, he, the, the way he lines up the men is that every time when you charge bayonets, you sort of two guys, the, the guys in the back step forward, so you always have two guys against one of the enemy, and so this is scientific, and you will always beat your enemy. And he also in, in, introduced the concepts of, of uh, fort and and uh, foible to to, to the game so 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 he certainly thought that he had come up with something something uh, very clever but the british army didn't think so and in the 1830s the british army were were uh, were experimenting with uh, at least three other systems as well by uh, major Mac macarthur about whom i know very little and uh, um, uh, the, the system of henry angelo the grandson of, of domenico angelos and uh, also an English translation of the Swedish system developed by uh, Per Henrik Ling. And they rejected them, th them all because they are too complex, the command words are too long and hard to understand, and uh, the exercises are too strenuous, and uh, people will get hernia from doing them, and uh, <laughs> uh, soldiers' gear is too heavy, they can't do these fancy movements in the field. And also the, the soldiers, the British soldier already knows how to use their rifle, and uh, making taking away their free time to introduce new exercises is pointless. So the British <laughs> Army 
only that, that sounds <laughs> yeah. so very British. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and and the British army actually eventually, and and this is this is uh, it's it's a kind of you you could say that the first time they were in at war with a nation who was actually doing bayonet fencing. I, I I'm not saying this is the reason, but uh, in the Crimean War. After the Crimean War, the British Army did adopt Henry Angelo's system as an official training curriculum. But even that is not—it's not really a, like a bayonet fencing system. No. It's like these different thrusts in different directions, and so it's so it's nothing as as complex and this, as as the Swedish, the complete Swedish system or the Saxon system, which actually I think they also tried out. But it was too strenuous with all the jumping and and uh, one-handed thrust and stuff like that but uh, but yeah so and then later on of course uh, Alfred Hutton did write his his books and he was sort of looking into all the stuff and wanted to come up with a good system of, of bayonet fencing and uh, he actually also came up with something that is quite close to the modern kind of of, of like what I like to call bayonet boxing with with yeah. what he called it uh, butt fencing which is very <laughs> you use the rifle butt and the and the bayonet yeah. as well yeah but that's kind of a different way of moving your body and this is something that becomes popular after the second world war and right. also in Finland so it was uh, uh, so so it, it's like a, it's like the new wave of bayonet fencing but but anyway um, of course bayonet bayonet fencing sort of came to be uh, independently as parallel development in, in several places at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, but one name sort of sticks out, and that is uh, uh, Eduard von Selbnitz, a Saxon captain who was stationed in France for some time, and he learned uh, he learned uh, uh, fencing, uh, thrust or foil fencing in, in uh, Germany, I think, and he also learned the Italian style and the French style from Joseph Pinet, who, who was later also known as the... Uh, originator of the French system of bayonet, even though his and Selnitz's systems are not really related in any way. But, uh, 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 but Selnitz, Selnitz sort of, yes, he, he, he also learned, uh, uh, from, uh, from a French sailor or some sources actually say it was an American sailor. I'm not sure about that. I need to, to look, look into it, but he learned from a sailor, uh, this, this system of, of, uh, uh, of, of fighting with, uh, with the baton. So with with a stiff stick or a staff. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and then he put all these things he had learned together and created this perfect system of of uh, bayonet fencing against cavalry and against infantry. And uh, well, sometime sometime later, he was he was a very sought after teacher, and officers from other uh, regiments and armies would come to him to to learn this system. And it was it basically spread to the right. other German German nations. So, uh, so do you think it was actually? So it was good, was it? Well, it must have. Been. They they must have thought it was good for whatever purpose they thought they, they were training it for. Yeah, yeah, because it's a very good exercise. I mean, I, I love doing the uh, warm up drills and everything. It's it's a very nice stuff to do, and uh, uh, and it's at, like like the German commentators say it it it, uh, it it sort of obeys the rules of fencing. Right. Unlike, for example, the Swedish system. So, yeah, this this Selnitz, he's he's something of a of a Lichtenauer of the nineteenth century German bayonet scene, I would say. Okay. And uh, and he and and some some regulations came out at the time, which were pretty much based on his teachings. And he also he also managed to get a book 
self-published, crowd, a crowd-funded, self-published book out in 1825. Wow. Uh, part one only, which is only about uh, only about uh, against cavalry. So he didn't. He never got to writing his own book on against infantry. So whatever he taught against infantry, you have to sort of piece together from the other regulations and uh, right. military journals and, you know, all these commentaries on his teachings that, that exists elsewhere. Uh, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it was all, it also came out later as a, as a second edition, but it's a, so, it's a very nice book with very beautiful engravings showing, showing the different positions and the movements. So what do you actually practice? Uh, well, I, I do practice this uh, Selnitsi system and the mm -hmm. Swedish system. The Swedish system is okay. actually something that I, for a long time, I felt that I knew it the best because uh, there are uh, Ling's, um, Per Henrik Ling's own writings, the regulation he wrote in 18, uh, 1836, and uh, his commentaries, his replies to critics, for example, right. because Very there were many critics. Yes, because he, there were many critics who said that you can't actually, uh, the, the thrust, because he didn't use the lunge. He thought that the Swedish uh, body type was not good for lunging, and it's, oh, it's, it's a difficult, not, not good for jumping. The Nordic body type is not good for jumping, and uh, lunges are too difficult to teach. You can't teach a proper lunge. And, uh, and he also makes a very interesting claim okay. that, uh, you don't need a lunge in bayonet fencing because uh, the only the only uh, reason you use the lunge is to move forward, and you can move forward by taking a step. And the mm -hmm. second reason uh, is that you get power when you do the lunge, but with the bayonet rifle you don't need power because it's so heavy. Ergo, you don't need the lunge. He's not wrong. Well, he's ignoring speed, I suppose, but I mean, <laughs> that, that's, uh, yeah. So, so this was his argument, and he only has walking steps uh, or passing steps, because mm -hmm. that was something that they were already taught in their basic training. So yeah. since the, the soldiers would know how to walk at that point, hopefully, I mean, this, this was not something that you could take, take for granted, because, you yeah. know, at the time, if, you, if you've worked your whole life uh, at a field or something, you are not ergonomically necessarily like, like ready to, to walk or stand properly. So this was some, one of the reasons they, they came up with military gymnastics in the first place. But, uh, but yeah, so, so, uh, so, so, so it's very interesting reading about his arguments, uh, uh, and his responses to his critics, because that kind of gives you more than just a regulation where he describes the movements mm. and, and so forth. So you really get to these details and why you have to have the weight on the rear foot, that you, because you need to concentrate. You don't want eccentric force. You want concentrated force or something. So, 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 and, and he gets sometimes a bit philosophical as well and he's actually uh, uh, yeah I should mention that his his influence uh, is is very far-reaching uh, the, the Swedish uh, uh, gymnastics or, or what that he developed were sort of practiced all over and uh, became like a huge thing and he's also the reason we right. call classical he's also the reason we call classical massage Swedish massage but right yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. he's the guy who developed the calisthenics that the basic thing also got adopted by the yogis in India into something that they could teach back he, to the Europeans. Yeah, 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 yeah. This he, he ties into all this as well. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but uh, but his bayonet fencing is interesting, and his yeah. fencing system as well. And uh, See, I, also... I knew I knew of his his um, calisthenics stuff. I didn't know about his bayonet stuff at all. Mm, yeah, yeah. So so uh, and, and then because this uh, system of his was actually adopted by the Prussian army. 
mm-hmm. uh, around the uh, in the uh, uh, 1840s, and and uh, and the German uh, short abridged German manual was published at the time, and of course that was also met with a lot of criticism because the Prussians didn't didn't like the Swedish system. So so you get a lot of information not only from the books themselves, but from the prefaces and the, yeah. the for when they sort of respond to different points that people have brought up and so forth. So, so the Swedish, Swedish Prussian system is very well uh, documented, very widely documented. And uh, that, that is something that I kind of actively uh, practiced and also taught to, to my, my group of, of, of students or uh, some unfortunate people whom I exposed to my, my <laughs> experiments, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, uh, but then, yeah, the other system I do mostly is the, is the Selmitz one, the, the Saxon system. And I'm at the moment, I'm sort of trying to piece together from all these Saxon-inspired sources uh, what was what Selnitz actually taught against infantry. Fantastic. Because, uh, yeah, because it he, he also he there's so much similar to like modern martial arts discourse in all this because you know this that which which is the best art. This was like something. This, this was yeah, a, that old stupid of, of, thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a very very heated topic. And uh, there was the Danish school, which was somewhat independent, and the Saxon school, and the Swedish school, and the, the French school. So one group of, of Prussian officers, they actually wrote a book uh, where they criticized this uh, Swedish system and came up with their sort of... Uh, idea of what the Prussian system should be like and then in the and and then later on of course the Prussians came up with their own uh, regulation that was a, like a modified version of the Swedish system and every new iteration of this of the Prussian regulation sort of brings it slightly closer to the Saxon system so they right. they bring back the one-handed thrust and uh, the lunge and stuff like oh, that a one-handed thrust with a rifle with a yeah. bayonet from that period that is Quite yeah, that physically was, challenging. Yeah, but that's 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 what they what they did, except for the Swedes mm. and uh, the the, Dan- the Danish the so called Danish thrust is uh, like a slide that you just uh, loosen up the front hand and you let let the yeah. musket or the you rifle slide through it. Yeah, yeah. And the Swedes would just thrust with uh, both hands, and uh, the Saxon thrust would be just letting go with the with the left altogether. Which I, yeah. okay, I think I think people need to kind of try that to get an idea of what kind of physical conditioning you need to be able to do that accurately it's mm. something i train i train it with with spears and sticks and whatnot to be able to mm-hmm. hold it by the wrong end and you know strike yeah. accurately from far away but it takes a lot of work yeah and and this is something that they did a lot of this uh, training with this uh, uh, this kind of uh, stick that you would mm-hmm. hold on on shoulder level or a bit higher and twirl it uh, backwards and forwards and over your head and so forth to make your wrists supple and strong. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is actually the only part in Selnitz's uh, bayonet fencing that actually comes from these French baton practices because uh, okay. because I can't really see anything else in his system that wouldn't, sure. couldn't be explained as a version of, of like foil fencing okay. with uh, you uh-huh. know changing changing the details, of course, because you are holding a rifle yeah. and, 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 and not... Uh, and not 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 a light sword, but uh, and then they dropped that dropped that altogether at some point because they thought that okay you can just do exercises with with your weapon so why why right. would you need this set of sticks because you can just do rifle you know 
rifle yeah. gymnastics, as, as they call them, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Brilliant. And uh, okay. Selnitz, yeah. But but Selnitz also he was also proficient with the flail. Wow. Uh, yeah. And that's uh, a hard he, weapon. Yeah. And in 1830, he did this like huge demonstration or show in 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 Dresden, and uh, there he yeah he had his students perform. Uh, fencing moves and, and, and stuff and then he defended himself successfully against multiple opponents with with his flail and uh, and he also showed uh, staff or stick fighting there but cool. uh, the uh, the report of that event is it's not quite clear on whether the technique was significantly different from his bayonet fencing and of course the person who was writing this report did it wasn't really an expert on the topic so right it's a bit hard to piece together what 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 kind of stuff his stick fighting actually was but yeah it's fascinating now i have a couple of questions that i ask all of my guests uh well all of them who consent to being asked these questions because <laughs> as you know uh, my guests get their questions in advance um so what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet uh Yes, all the good ideas I have hopefully acted on. So this is going to be one of the worst ones. No, uh, but I mean, one thing that I was, I'm, I'm thinking of acting on at some point is to, to sort of uh, uh, draw up a research plan on more generally uh, ancient or Greek uh, military or martial education, uh, lo- looking at how, how this is done, not only in terms of these, these uh, uh, few fragments that we have of wrestling which which of course had a military significance as well which we didn't talk about but it is there sure. uh, and you can look it up in my in, in the article of course uh, but uh, but in in uh, in uh, uh, Tertius's uh, famous songs where he's uh, these so-called Spartan songs where he where he sort of uh, which which were composed to sort of excite the men to to battle uh, and so forth, and also these these works written on on more more like high level uh, like like uh, siege craft and stuff like that. So kind of bringing that together and trying to make make some kind of uh, maybe monograph out of that or a few articles or whatever. Yeah, okay, no, that would that would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. So basically, we we should be expecting a book from you at some point. Um, well, I mean, I have so many things on my plate right now. So, and even, I mean, even you, there was this one idea earlier we talked about that I haven't also acted on yet. So, regarding Giles of Rome. So, <laughs> yes, yes, okay. But, uh, ah, oh dear. Okay, I, I'll tell you what you should do, right? Just, just give me complete control of your diary for the next 10 years. And I <laughs> promise you, we will get at least four books out of you. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe not. Well, but. it's also a matter of funds, but yeah. <laughs> ah, yeah, okay. Honestly, hmm? I think if it's pitched right, you wouldn't have any difficulty getting significant amounts of cash from the people who are likely to be interested to read the book. Because, I mean, like like the Giles thing, for instance, if you're looking at the, the sword work and the footwork, if you, if you stick to that, Raising funds from the historical martial arts community to pay you to do that work and publish it should not be too hard, really. Because we're, we're talking, we're talking about low five figures. We're not talking about six figures or seven. So yeah, really. Because it's fascinating. Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear, hear that it's fascinating. And a bit, a bit of crowdfunding, maybe that sort of thing. Okay. All right. Yeah, I don't I have no experience in, in such matters. I've got lots. Yes, I know. Right. Okay. Okay. And pr- pretty much every everything you suggested that you would like to do is something I would like to see done. So, mm. obviously, after the we've finished this episode, if if at some point you decide you would like to pursue something like this, 
and you want any sort of advice or suggestions or help setting up the funding or the publishing or any of that kind of stuff, just ask, seriously. Because I, I would like to see this stuff out in the world in a in the sort of form that people can just buy it and read it because it would be good for the historical martial arts community as a whole. So count me in. Okay. Oh, great. But no pressure. No pressure. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> okay. All right. My last question. Um, somebody gives you a million euros or similar large amount of cash to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? Well, what we just talked about. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, but I, of course, I'll have to be boring here. I mean, what I would uh, see as the most rational thing to do would be to set up a private foundation with a board of trustees that would just, you know, give out yearly grants for research in the field of historical martial arts studies, whether philological or historical or material. So That's that would, in the long run, most likely benefit benefit uh, this thing the, the most. Okay, so so basically, use it as an alternative to crowdfunding. So set up a, a yeah, a more traditional yeah. form of funding. <laughs> okay, and like so, anyone who has a research proposal around <laughs> around historical martial arts yeah. should apply to the fund and yeah, yeah, get the money to go do the thing. Okay, if there were such a thing. Just to make clear, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah, this is what this you would use the money <laughs> yeah, to yeah. set up, to set yeah, up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, that's that's actually a fairly. Uh, you're not the first person on the show to suggest something like it. Hmm. Okay. Um, I'm glad because like, I mean, people tend to go either towards the um, scholarships for people to travel to train, mm-hmm. or scholarships or grants or whatever for people to do some kind of research or translation. Those are the two main things that people tend to mm. go for. Okay. And is it difficult to get funding from current mainstream sources for academic work in this area? I've never tried, so I wouldn't know. Well, I mean, I would have to say yes, but okay. uh, yes, and I'm, I'm, I'm working on that uh, right now. So I didn't want to jinx it by talking <laughs> about it, of course. This, oh, yeah, fair. This is, this is where all, all academics get very superstitious. So <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. It, but it yeah, does, of course, there there are always you know less people less money given out than there are people applying for it. So yeah, right. you can always say that it's difficult depending yeah. on 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 funding decisions. But uh, yeah, so are you currently employed by the university? No, I'm a grant researcher, so I'm ah, uh, okay. working at the university, but with an outside grant. So that's that's rather right. typical. But yeah. so, and uh, in my opinion, of course, a very unfortunate arrangement that it's become so typical, but uh, that's that's the situation. Yeah, we could spend another hour and a half talking about how academia has totally fucked itself over the last 30 years. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did consider 20-odd years ago going into academia, and I just looked at it, and I just, I just, I just couldn't get my head around the, the how much admin bullshit do you need to do to get one word of proper mm. research done? You know? Yeah, of course, that, that is one of the best things when you are a, gr- a grant-funded researcher that you don't <clears> really have, necessarily, you don't need to have many other responsibilities at the same time, at least. So. No, but you, but you but do have to apply for these grants. Yes, and yeah, and all the other stuff, of course. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. So you all are right. sort of kind of, uh, you, you, you have the feeling that you are a bit of an outsider and, uh, and, uh, yeah. and so forth. So. But as long as you don't have to go to faculty meetings, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I suppose so. See, I, still I, re- get all, I still get all the emails, though. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I read somewhere that, that Stephen Hawking once attributed much of his academic success 
to the fact that due to his disabilities, he was never required to go to meetings. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so he could just do his research, yeah, teach yeah, his yeah. classes and write his papers <laughs> and that was that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I is, can relate to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've got a lot to think about now because like, I have my readers, my students, or what have you, are effectively my grant-giving body. Mm. Um, and I know, I absolutely know for a sure and certain fact that there are people listening right now who are going, I would throw money at this bloke to write that Greek thing. <laughs> so I'm just, okay. I'm just going to leave you with that thought. I'm just gonna <laughs> I can't help myself. I'm like, no, exciting, cool shit. Let's get it done. <laughs> well... <laughs> No, I'm sorry. Oh, yes, you shouldn't. You shouldn't, you shouldn't put a. You shouldn't put a fin on the spot like that. It's not yeah. fair. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Andy. It's been lovely meeting you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andy. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember to go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Wang Chunyi, who is an instructor of classical and military sabre at Lionheart Historical European Swordsmanship in Taipei, Taiwan. And yes, she is our very first guest from Taiwan. And also, she is one of the founders or the founder of the Lionheart Historical European Swordsmanship Club. We discuss all sorts of things, including why she's so much into Sabre, what is the historical martial arts situation like in Taiwan, how it differs from the rest of the world, um, something about her strength training programs. And also, we do delve into her obsession. I think that's the right word with cats. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. And as always, and most importantly, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. Share it as widely as you possibly can. Let's get this all the way to the International Space Station and beyond that, even to the moon. So thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. (laughs) 